Hey, this is Cameron. We're taking our June break this month, but we didn't want to leave you fine people high and dry. So this month we'll be rerunning older podcasts that we thought deserved more attention or we're just particularly proud of them. This week, we've got a long one for you. Zulaikha, parts one and two by Guzel Yakhina, the story of a Muslim Tatar woman in the early Soviet Union who's arrested and sent to a labor camp out in Siberia. I won't give away more than that, but I will say this. It is absolutely one of the best books Matt has ever recommended to me. Uh, when I started reading it, I think I, it was around 11 p.m. just trying to go to bed, and I stayed up literally the whole night up until dawn to finish it. If you have the time and ability, I would thoroughly recommend you pick it up. But hey, even if you can't, definitely listen to the podcast. This is one of my favorites from our early days. All right, let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garismovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, considering starting a game store. <laughs> As with every week. <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana, international politics appreciator and future surf to the Dominion of Data. Oh, baby. This is a podcast where <laughs> me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be reading the first half of Gazelia Kina's Zuleika. This book won the Yasnai Polyana Literary Award and the Big Book Award in 2015. But before we get into the show, we just wanted to give a quick thank you to all of our patrons that are currently supporting us. If you're interested in helping out the show, like all of them, take a look at patreon.com slash We put a lot of work into our tiers and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you're not able to financially support us at the moment, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for the updates. Uh, but before we get into the reading, I have the most important question of the day. Matt, what are you drinking tonight? How do you think you would pronounce this? Vallejo? Vallejo? Oh, Vallejo, probably. Vallejo? Dude, I'm going to get shit on if I say this wrong. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm going to give you a pass because as someone who lives near Vallejo and knows a direct descendant of the actual General Vallejo or Vallejo... Uh, you can say Vallejo. You, you got my permission oh, as someone geez, who's... Thanks. I'm not Hispanic, but I am I am Filipino, which makes me Hispanic adjacent, so... <laughs> <laughs> this week, I am drinking Half Acre Beers Vallejo and IPA from one of my favorite Chicago breweries. It comes in a big can. It makes me feel powerful. It's pretty art. It's really good. What are you drinking this week? I'm drinking something far less artistic. Mm. I'm drinking a uh, something called a Speedway Stout, mm. uh, which is an imperial stout with coffee from Alesmith, which is a San Diego brewery. Sounds good. Now that I'm looking at it, it says that I should be drinking this out of a goblet, which uh. I do have, but not immediately at my side. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's a... Uh, well, I'm going to pretend like I'm actually at the Speedway and, and keep drinking it out of the can. I just know I'm glad that we both got real beers this week instead of copping out or instead of me copping out basically <laughs> well both of us yeah. I, my dad last week i was talking to him and he said uh yeah i'm glad i need to get you some more beers because you had a really boring drink on the other day and i was like my dad's roasting me about the drinks i'm bringing onto my podcast where how did i get to this point in my life honestly if your dad wants to send, wants to send me beer if he thinks my drinks are boring <laughs> you know i'll send him my address more than happy <laughs> i'll let him know <laughs> please <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay so before we get into the book itself, we thought this might be a good time to kind of analyze the era that it comes from. Obviously, it kind of happens in the very late 
1920s, maybe early 1930s is where we begin, and it continues on through World War II. And if you think about the USSR in the 1930s, the there are good odds that one of the major things you're going to think of is the Great Terror from roughly 1935 to 1939, although really 37 to 39 is when you, it hits its kind of fever pitch, and that's often the era that is most heavily examined. Obviously, this book more so deals with dekulakization, at least in the beginning. That's what is the catalyst for the story, as we'll get into, but certainly it does deal with the effects of the terror later on. Looking back at this, what I, what I want to do right now is kind of I'm trying to be careful with how I phrase this. Look at the USSR not as as a, as a foreign country, which is strange and ununderstandable to us, and, and take the kind of dominant, almost Orwellian view we have. And I want to I want this to be a good chance for us to view the USSR as a living society. By which I mean, although it is definitely a popular view that uh, the Great Terror was something that affected society from the top to the bottom, and it, it's the terror that it was. Uh, done by the arrests and the show trials, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that, that created like a line to keep society functioning, or at least functioning as the the you know higher echelons of the Communist Party wanted. You know that that is something that we all. Matt, have you ever seen um, Death of Stalin? Oh, many times. Yeah, great movie. Yes. If you haven't if you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch it. Very very funny. There's a scene very early on, uh, and of course this is happening in 1952 where. Before Stalin dies, the NKVD, every night they're getting their lists of people and they're going out through Moscow and their Black Marias and they're dragging people out of their houses, you know, in mass to be tortured and, and shot. And there are definitely eras in certain places in the Soviet Union where, where this fear of the Black Marias was a constant threat for many people. Uh, that being said, um, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present information largely taken from the article Fear and Belief in the USSR's Great Terror, Response to Arrest 1935 through 1939, which, yes, is a very unwieldy <laughs> title. Uh, it's written by Robert W. Thurston. I believe he also wrote a book, Life and Terror in Stalin's Russia, 1934 through 1941, which I obviously haven't read, so I can't talk to what exactly is in it, but I suspect it's pretty similar to this article, just, you know, in a much longer book format. And this is a piece which is kind of seeks to challenge the dominant perception of this era. And before I go further, I also want to quickly clarify, because this is a debate I've run into quite a few times before. Some people, at least when I was reading Amazon reviews of Thurston's book, I saw some people calling it a revisionist or essentially revisionist. And I think revisionism is thrown around as an insult. And yeah, definitely sometimes there are there are bad forms of, revision, of revisionism. Uh, that being said, revisionism or the idea of revising our understanding of history is, I would say, actually fairly common academic practice. I mean, it's fairly fairly unsurprising to be in an academic context and you have a, a historian looking at an event and saying, well, this is how we commonly understand it, but let's see if there's actually a documentation to back that up or if I can find, you know, find an archive which really tells the same story. So the idea of reanalyzing our view of history and, and revising it based on extant evidence rather than popular narrative, I think is something that gets a bad rap, but is actually fairly necessary in our way of understanding history. And it should be noted that Thurston here is challenging a dominant view. And this is not only in the popular sphere, but also in, in the academic context as well. So I'm not saying that everything you know is wrong. Thurston is, is absolutely correct. But I'm, I'm here to, as it challenged me, I challenge you with this idea. Oftentimes, when we are having these discussions, a lot of our information comes from relatively few sources, especially Emmy Gray uh, sources, who pretty understandably had a hard time of it. So they were definitely not writing favorable things about the USSR. Uh, but there are some things where it just goes beyond 
belief, like um, like the Great Terror. Um, I don't know if you ever run into this, Matt. Sometimes you'll have a conversation, and if they're usually people are not talking about the Great Terror, but they're talking about the whole of like uh, industrialization and deaths related to that, the various purges, the the Holomador, et cetera, et cetera. And every single time they tell you a death toll, they'll like add five million people. Yeah, that happened to me like literally within the last month, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think the the figure I was quoted was 40 million. And I was like, okay, I really hate that I'm being like, I, I don't want to be backed into supporting the Soviet Union. I just want you to know that you have like not correct figures, you know, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't discount how many people were killed, but like it definitely was not as many as you're saying. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not saying that, that I'm not trying to say, oh, this wasn't really as bad. That's not the point I'm trying, I'm, I'm coming in here to make. The point I'm coming in here to make is that we, we don't need to rely on uh, spitballed or just kind of made up statistics in order to, to condemn something. Um, we can look at the, the, the machinery of the purges and exactly how many people were, were uh, killed in the purges. Likely in the realm of around a million people, somewhere between, I've seen 700,000 to a million the exact scholars exactly debate, and these are based on obviously imperfect sources. Local archives aren't then brought up to national archives, et cetera, et cetera. But I have seen quite often stated that the the matter of specifically the purges, this is not a complete um, of like all the major death events in the USSR. We're really talking a matter of hundreds of thousands of deaths rather than like millions or even sometimes as it's put tens of millions. And the reason why that's important in this case is, as Thurston points out in the article, there are uneven reactions to the Great Terror as it's happening. And he's basing this on, I believe, this data from the Smolensk archives, as well as other memoirs, which are not always cited in, in at least common understanding. And he points out that for a large number of people, there was either i mean there are a variety of reactions it's a living society and there are are there varying ways of reacting to it Uh, even there's i can't remember his name unfortunately right now but there is an american worker who who stayed in magnitogorsk well past um the well well past the iron curtain following and initially they had a lot of western workers but eventually they kind of kicked them all out over time as Magnitogorsk grew to become one of the biggest steel producers in the USSR, except for this one guy who stayed and wrote a book. He noted during this era, during these years, that oftentimes workers would accuse their, their bosses of being wreckers and even would kind of follow the popular narrative of like, well, actually, these, these arrests are happening because there are people undermining our country. So, you know, you're a wrecker. And they would almost use that as like a, oftentimes, if they're debating or having issues with their boss, that would be an accusation thrown around. Or uh, uh, people who early on, and, and kind of you, like I said earlier, you could see purges hitting a fever pitch in uh, like spring 1937 onward, people who uh, especially because this was something that, that did heavily impact the party itself. In fact, there's, if I can go on another little diatribe for a moment, there's a, there's an old joke from this era, which Thurston cites in his article. An NKVD officer comes and, and knocks on uh, an apartment door in the middle of the night, really pounding on it, and he says, NKVD, open up. And a voice from the inside says, Comrade, you have the wrong apartment. The communists are upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes there there is a perception that this is something that's specifically happening to to other groups. Um, people express that they know it's happening, and they'll sometimes they say, "Oh, this is maybe right, this is maybe wrong," um, but this is happening to a different group of people. Even he cites some memoirs of some people who were themselves arrested or had family members arrested, and the narrative wasn't one of overarching fear so much as it was of 
well, actually, the system itself maybe was not. The system itself is working. It's just I'm the mistake. I'm the error here. And, of course, for some of these people, that would, of course, change over time is this continued being the, you know, the exceptions continue not being the exceptions, but rather the main feature, I suppose. And, of course, like I'm saying, this, there's an uneven number of reactions, but uh, Thurston puts forth the argument that it was not one of, of universal terror, of kind of Orwellian terror as we have to think of it. Among certain classes of people, absolutely, that was something that pervaded their everyday sense, the fear of those Black Marias. For other people, maybe not so much, and that's something that changes over time, as perceptions change. Uh, certainly, you still see a great willingness to engage in um, nationalism, or uh, I, I don't know if nationalism is exactly the right word for USSR, but, but you know, jingoistic support of the governance— of, of the government in, in the Russo-Finnish war of this era of, of World War II. And I'm sure that you can have <laughs> difficult feelings on the same subject. And again, I'm not trying to put forth a, oh, it really wasn't as bad as, as the West says kind of narrative. Um, and, but I'm trying to put forth that the idea that the machinery itself can be a condemnation of, of the Stalinist system and the Stalinist era. But we don't need to engage in a... In a simplistic view of history in order to understand it and, and in fact it, it maybe help us may help us understand where how societies function if if we are then to accept thurston's view which you don't necessarily have to he's putting forth argumentation based on evidence every people are certainly free to find contradictory evidence and make a systematic argument back against that point but if we accept thurston's assertions well then that that creates some interesting questions of nationalism in society and the ways people react to terror in their own society, which I think are really interesting questions. I'm going to go into my political science hole. Um, sometimes we still take on this Francis Fukuyama kind of view of history of in the 90s, political scientist Fukuyama boldly proclaimed the, the victory of liberalism over over other ideologies and, and the end of ideological history. Really, liberalism is the end point of history is the argument he put forth. And sometimes we take on, not in rhetoric, but in idea, the, the notion that what exists today is, is necessarily how it must be, and things in the past are necessarily of the past. Of course, things, uh, the many governments that are no longer in existence, yeah, they're, they're pretty sensitive to the time. However, I would put forth to you uh, the idea that the sociological forces which create some features of those society are not things that are retired. They're merely expressed in different ways or not expressed for a certain time and so actually by again if we under if we if we accept thurston's view of history and then use that as a basis of analysis that might actually get us some interesting models of understanding society which are maybe still be applicable today because the basic forces behind the ways humans act i don't think change all that much over time but anyway that's my soapbox i'll get out of it let's talk about much more interesting topics like uh, folklore in well not siberia outside of kazan all right, Matt, over to you. <laughs> so my notes started really detailed because, as I mentioned, we read the first two parts of four parts in this episode. And I really liked the first part, and then I didn't really like the second part in the same way, or like there wasn't as much going on in the second part. Right. I, I mean, there was definitely more going on in the second part than the first part but you know you'll just you'll see you'll see in a later interview i read of the author yakina mm -hmm. i read that she initially wrote this as a screenplay and it really shows in the yeah. second part the first part is much more chock full of cultural information in, in general like yes. the world that zuleika lives in whereas the second part really is more like a movie and it really feels like it the second part would have made a great movie and i was just thinking like 
compositionally i have some thoughts on it that i'll get to later but okay yeah. i'm excited so the, the first part is called the pitiful hen and i'm just going to kind of lay out the main characters that you have in this part so you have zuleika who's about like 20 ish early 20s you have her husband mortaza who's about 50 ish yeah it's not exactly specific he was 45 when she was 15 when they got married that's the only concrete dates that we have and then you have mortaza's mother who is only referred to, I, I think they give her actual name, but uh, Zuleika refers to her as the vampire hag, which is just a funny mother-in-law name. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not like a funny, cheeky mother-in-law name. It's like a, not the best situation in which Zuleika is is in. And that's what this first chapter kind of, kind of gets at. The vampire hag gives Zuleika the name, the pitiful hen, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. And we'll get more into it. But you get kind of painted this picture of what, what the world is, what the life is like. And it's very interesting because it's not a perspective that you get a lot in Russian literature by any means. You're getting an outside viewpoint. You're getting somebody from like a a Kazan suburb, if you will. And so you're dealing with a family who are Muslim, which is not what you get typically in Russian literature. And so that leads to some kind of some interesting dynamics that we'll get to in part two. But so part one, it's laying out the world. So Zlaika is, you know, she's raiding the, uh, the the family stash, trying to get some snacks early before the vampire hag gets up. Uh, the vampire hag, uh, deaf and blind, but she has this, you know, she can sense everything with her feet and tell exactly who's walking around doing what. To be fair, you know, we as, as in our modern era can like mostly tell the members of our family walking around the house by their footsteps. Yes. Oh, yeah. Big time. Also, her... her- her pool is is um, Zuleika and Murtaza, and yeah, given that yeah. Zuleika is like a, a fifth of Murtaza's weight, I think. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of well. I mean, some parts <laughs> some parts of it are comical, perhaps not the emotional abuse hurled on and physical abuse hurled on to Zuleika. I don't even yeah, like know how cool. to summarize this first part because so much like so many things happen. But basically, it, it it's it's customary at, at this time. I would say, generally speaking, in Russia, early Soviet Union, especially Russian Empire era, when you get to it, that when the woman gets married, that is like she becomes a servant of her mother-in-law. That's how the family dynamics work. And that's exactly what you see here. The vampire hag just abuses Zalaika, makes her do everything. Uh, this this girl has done more than I had done in my entire life in like one day. And not to mention the end of the day when Zalaika is bathing her and it's not just like a bath. Keep in mind this is like Murtaza built a whole like like a bath house like steam. Yeah. Yeah. You know it's a sauna sauna everything and it's not just bathing. It's like the whole shebang, uh, spices incense beating people with, with birch branch, which yep. I would like, but... Yeah, I mean, apparently she does because she's telling Zuleika to, like, beat her until, basically, until she starts to bleed. And then Murtaza comes to get her, and the vampire hag says that Zuleika had beat her. And then as a result of that, Murtaza beats Zuleika. And that's pretty uncomfy. Uh, there's, like, a, a half-sex scene where Murtaza decides, you know, he's not attracted to his wife, and then they go back inside and have sex and that's kind of where the chapter ends not not a, a happy one i'd say yeah and then there's also like this weird dream sequence that the, the vampire hag has where she she apparently has these dreams that are like i don't know predictions or prophecies which very often come true 
historically they've been uh, about Zuleika who has had I believe four daughters who have died either prematurely or like very young Th- this time it is about three fiery angels that will come into the, the house and take her straight to hell and this like it absolutely scares Zuleika granted I mean she's she's had a pretty good track record of them being right I guess because all four of her daughters have died and so that's kind of the anxiety that it leaves it on so then, and then it goes to to chapter two, which is really just kind of broadly uh, gives some more background into Zuleika. It gives uh, more commentary on the Red Army and the requisitions that were going on at this time. Basically, the you know the Red Army could demand, or the village Soviet could demand that grain or animals or whatever could be requisitioned. And this comes on from the Civil War throughout just the period that this is set in, which is mid-20s. So this ends in an act of defiance of Zuleika's husband, Murtaza, slaughtering their cow before it can be requisitioned. And they, you know, they do a lot of stuff. They talk about kind of how they had been hiding grain, how they had been doing all sorts of stuff to prevent themselves from starving after their food had been requisitioned from them. Uh, In the last chapter of part one, Zuleika and Murtaza, they decide to hide grain in their daughter's graves. And so they you know, dig up the graves and hide grain in it. And on their way back, the Red Army, a couple of Red Army soldiers catch them and interrogate them. And Murtaza gets angry and swings his axe at one of them. Uh, Soldier Ignatov, who plays a role in the second part, he shoots him and kills him. Not long after Zuleika kind of gets him home, the Red Army slash village Soviet leaders come to collectivize, like, basically their entire estate. And Zuleika has to join a caravan of recalled kulaks being led by the Red Army to leave her estate. Again, kind of a brute summary of this part, which is like there's a lot to unpack in it, which we will later. In part two, I I could just summarize literally as like they're just in transit to Siberia. Yeah. So it starts in in transition. The caravan is being taken. They don't know where. It's kind of the general theme of part two is they don't know what's happening, where they're going. It's quite terrifying, especially for Zalika, who I, I don't think has been really outside of their village, perhaps ever. It's also an interesting kind of clash of cultures, really, because you have the citizens of this village who are primarily provincial people. Uh, they work the land, mostly Muslim, etc., etc. And then you have the Red Army soldiers who are a, a lot of young, uh, primarily ethnic Russian uh, atheists, who uh, certainly don't have much respect for cultural traditions that they <laughs> that don't relate to Marxist-Leninism. Exactly. So that's how the, the caravan ends up spending a night in an abandoned mosque on their way to wherever it is they're going. And that that's something that actually happened quite a bit at this time. You see through Soviet film and whatnot, staying in abandoned mosques or churches or other religious buildings, and kind of the feeling of desecration that comes along with that for the people who are being kind of forced out of where they're going to stay in a former holy space is not something that is particularly pleasant for them. And as as they leave the mosque, Zuleika looks back and she sees a red Soviet flag flying over the mosque. And a, a brief aside from what is so far a really depressing kind of, <laughs> kind of story, and and it won't get it won't really get more cheerful as we go into it. But the funniest line in perhaps line of the week which I nominated for it comes from this chapter, which is the red the red army soldier who the caravan gets delayed because one of the mares is a little bebe and try, trying to get some food and it stops the whole caravan for like an hour and he exclaims, 
even your mares are kind of revolutionaries. And so <laughs> it was kind of kind of a funny moment in what was otherwise a quite quite serious narrative. Yeah, I think it's probably one of the only funny moments in the book. Intentionally, I imagine. I would think so. I would hope so. Yeah. So the next chapter like completely breaks with what we've been doing. And it takes you to this professor, Professor Lieber, who's a German professor at Kazan University. He's a former surgeon. He's very well respected. And basically what you come to find out is that he had just a complete mental breakdown following the revolution. And he kind of lives in the past in his communal apartment, which has been collectivized and in which a lot of people now live. He ends up at the end of the chapter being picked up by secret police officers and the rest of the apartment wants to sell off his furniture. There's kind of more that happens in that chapter. I actually really like that chapter. Personally, I remember being struck about it just reading for the first time. I thought it was really well done. But it, it's it's kind of like a, a separate sort of deal. The I think what it's supposed to show is that eventually Professor Lieber becomes friends or meets Zuleika while they're in transit in Kazan. And it's supposed to show, I think, kind of the... The, the way that different social classes and kind of professions all get just combined into this one transitional group as they're being brought. So at this point in the story, we've got three basic characters we've been following. Obviously, Zuleika, the eponymous character of the book, uh, Wolf Karlovich Leiba, and finally Ignatov, who has been transporting all these people into Kazan. For Ignatov, he's expecting this this to be where his involvement in the story ends. He has he has transported everyone back to where he's supposed to. Now he's got big plans like breaking up with his girlfriend Elona for his paramour Nastasia. Yeah, they go a little bit too in, too into depth on that one, I gotta say. Really, really far into depth about his Quite love affair. White graphic. <laughs> um, but when he goes to see his boss at Red Army Headquarters, Bakiev, who is an old friend of his, uh, Bakiev is like, no, you've got to transport the prisoners on a train to where they're going to go. And Ignatov is indignant. He is like, I don't want to do this. This is a terrible job. I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. I have a girlfriend to break up with for my mistress <laughs> and what he doesn't really pick up on it is Bakiev is like really really desperately trying to get him to go he's got like he's like no Ignatov you should you should go you shouldn't be here for the next three months Ignatov is very very um dense so he really doesn't see that uh Bakiev is like clearly trying to destroy files <laughs> while this is going on <laughs> and he uh, kind of sullenly goes off and is like all right fine I'll go oversee the train or whatever thanks dad um <laughs> 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 and the next day before he, he he goes to take off on the train he goes to see Bakiev one more time to give him a piece of his mind and finds that the whole building is overrun with, with troopers he doesn't recognize and they, they're all kind of like who are you and for whatever reason I guess some amount of uh, self-preservation has just kicked in and he's like I'm just you know I'm just a trooper I'm just walking through I'm just delivering something and he's, as he's going through he's just realized that Bakiev and everyone associated with Bakiev is currently being arrested by other mem- by members of the NKVD um, and at that point he decides oh maybe Bakiev did have a reason for sending me I'm gonna go and after kind of a brief action scene of him sneaking out of the building he gets on the train and takes off for the next couple of months, this is the life of Ignatov, Wolf, and Zuleika. They're traveling on the train. Every time Ignatov tries to find a place to stop, no one will accept him. And, and he's just like, I literally don't know where I'm supposed to go. And everyone else also doesn't know where he's supposed to go because there was never really a plan. They were just, they're moving prisoners around that they don't have the infrastructure to support. And so you get a very good sense of what it's like to be 
a part of the officer class and that Ignatov and his soldiers are eating very well, while Zuleika and her companions are literally starving to death. But it does show some of Ignatov's humanity. He manages to barter away some of the goods on the train to keep feeding the prisoners because he doesn't really care about them per se, but he does care about having prisoners who are alive, and I guess he has some pride in that, so he makes sure they doesn't starve to death. I guess allegedly it would be bad if you were supposed to show up with, say, uh, several trains worth of prisoners and you showed up with... Nothing? <laughs> yeah. I guess you might consider that you would get into trouble for something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you probably wouldn't, but, you know, he thinks he does, so he keeps mm-hmm. them alive. And this goes on for a number of months. They're just literally just traveling up and down, going everywhere they can go, trying to find anywhere that will take these prisoners. Eventually, after months and months and, and a great number of the prisoners dying, they end up outside of Krasnoyarsk, which, if you've never looked at a map of the USSR, is deep in Siberia deep in siberia that's good that's going on a shirt <laughs> actually maybe it would be insensitive if that went on a shirt i don't know deep in- <laughs> we're going deep into siberia <laughs> please cut that <laughs> please cut that <laughs> no i won't i'm sorry that's that's staying um <laughs> and well there they meet up with this senior commander there for the the senior for the state political administrator zinovi kuznets and Kuznets is like, yeah, I've got a plan for your people. Let's get them all on boats. And they take them all into a barge. And for the most part, they're they're on, they've got one barge that fits most people. And Ignatov puts most of them underneath the decks just because he wants to make sure they don't get out. And all the other soldiers are like, are you sure? And Ignatov is really certain he doesn't want anyone to escape. Like uh, some of the people did on the train. Um, with the exception of a couple of important intellectuals who are all really old who he leaves on another boat with Kuznets and the other important staff members. Okay, now let me just butt in here. Yes, go for it. Surely they would have been aware of the events that unfolded on the Titanic by this point in time. (laughs) It was quite a famous incident. And now that was a boat that was supposed to not sink. And I don't want to give too much away here. But a boat which is more or less a couple of wood planks held together by some duct tape, which is apparently what this boat was. Well, Cameron, what happens with the boat? <laughs> well, well, luckily for our heroine, uh, she's very pregnant, which Wolf Lieba is just an incredible doctor. And he like literally looks at her when they're in the train and is like, yeah, you're pregnant. And, you know, even though he's got him, <laughs> even though he's so crazy that he literally does not recognize reality, he knows that she's pregnant. She's pretty weak. They all know it at this point, and Ignatov keeps her above deck. And as Matt has alluded to, as they're traveling down the river, they hit a storm, and the boat begins to capsize. To Ignatov's credit, when everything goes down Shit's Creek, when every other soldier is abandoning ship, he is immediately demanding to know where the keys are to unlock all the prisoners. Not to his credit, he's also the one that locked them all down there. Yeah, I was going to say... Wasn't that the point when they were like, can you please not lock us in here? There's no more air to breathe. And he was like, "Mm, open the little windows. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. So the dozens and dozens of people who have been brought are now all dead. And the survivors, which are literally a couple soldiers, all the soldiers who are above deck, Ignatov and Zuleika, um, wash up on the shores of the, the river. And they're picked up by the other boat with Kuznets and the five others who will now become a big feature of this story, who are mostly Leningrad intellectuals. They finally arrive at the destination point. When they get there, Ignatov is like, hey, Kuznets, where's the prison? And Kuznets is like, well, you're going to build it. And then <laughs> Ignatov is like, what? And then Kuznets books it and just leaves Ignatov with a gun and some ammo and 
not very many instruments for for survival because they were all in the boat that capsized just on the banks of this river very far like many 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 miles outside of krasnoyarsk which is already in the middle of nowhere just on the side of the river and was like all right good luck i'll be back in a couple of months and ignatov who is now surrounded by all these people who have been taken from their homes and and had a lot of their family and friends liquidated or left behind uh watch Ignatov break down and start shooting at Kuznets, which, frankly, given everything Kuznets could have done about that, pretty, pretty magnanimous that he does. He just chooses to forget that incident. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, that, that is that is where part two ends. Uh, Ignatov breaking down as he's been left behind with everyone he was supposed to liquidate. It happens. It really does. It, it does. It, it really happens to Ignatov. <laughs> if I could summarize the entirety of this part of the book. Yes. There is a line in part early in part two which it doesn't really translate well to english but zuleika is sitting in the train wondering where she's going and basically the only thing that answers her is the sound of the train itself saying where where there 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 i like that part i like that one it's good in russian the the line would be like she she heard the train saying to her kuda kuda tuda 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 which sounds more like a train moving but it's a that's basically part two Mm -hmm. (laughs) where where there there as you said that, like originally towards the beginning, I, I think that this would have been a really interesting screenplay. It, it actually, when you said that, it kind of made more sense to me. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like when I was reading this, it was, it felt long, but then I had to kind of think to myself, if I was in the situation of the main characters, like, you know, it probably also felt pretty freaking long to her too, not knowing right. where she was going so many miles from home, husband's dead, just kind of going along with where she's being taken. Right. And so in that sense, I'm like, okay, compositionally, I I would have rather have learned more about the first part of the story. But just like, it, it was really interesting that like, just as you were getting into it, she was like, no, I'm going to cut you off. And it's just collectivization time. Yeah. And I'm going to drop you like right into that story for a while. Yeah, which really makes sense because part one is very much, it, I mean, it takes place over the course of maybe two or three days. Mm-hmm. As as you go through Zuleika's life and you begin to understand the context, which is fascinating, and I want to talk about it in a bit, but part two really is just a series of set pieces. Kazan, the train, at set of Krasnoyarsk, the boat, the, uh, well, the side of the river, really. It's a series of set pieces. Well, and, and a lot on the train. A lot, lot on, the, on the, train. the train. A lot yeah, on like the train. a long time on the train. Yeah. I skipped the whole part where they have a prison escape. Yes. But, which doesn't really matter all that much in the in the grand scheme of things, but... Not really. A lot of very boring long pieces broken up by a few moments of excitement like mm-hmm. a movie perhaps mm-hmm. yeah but I, okay i want to talk about the first half of this book because i think this Please. is this is really what draws a lot of people to this book and it's what drew me in and you know like you mentioned at the very beginning zuleika is stealing uh, uh sort of like an apple there's not really snack. a good snack yeah i was yeah. gonna say like fruit by the foot it's <laughs> you know the old soviet fruit by the foot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like dried apple extract. So it it's that's the closest comparison I can think of. And at first you think that's just because she's hungry, but as you l- later learn when she is uh when she and Rataz are hiding the grain in their daughter's graves, she offers up that that apple extract basically to the spirits of the Urman. And the Urman is the the forest, which has given new life is not just the forest, but it's just like an impenetrable wall. You don't go in and you don't leave. Can we talk about the spirits? Let's talk, talk about the spirits. spirits. Let's talk about the spirits. Well, she offers it up to a spirit, and you begin to realize please. there's a whole cultural life here. And and Matt, let's talk about the spirits because we've been, oh, we've been dying to talk please. about the spirits. 
I need to let the spirits out. I've had so much to say about them. This was the first thing that actually attracted me to this book when I read this, because please forgive me, Professor, if you are listening to this episode. You're probably not. But uh, my freshman year in my undergraduate, I took a class on Russian culture and it was taught by a folklorist. And I was a freshman, so I was like, I'm not going to do these readings. Uh, And then it's haunted me for the rest of my life because I'm like, oh, that's actually super relevant to Russian culture. I wish I had done the readings. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so basically in Russian culture, as a general broad whole, there is this phenomena that had happened where in 988, when Rus was Christianized by Vladimir, it didn't happen all at once like converting pagans isn't an easy thing and so what ended up happening was there's a lot of pagan superstitious elements that are left over in the culture from when that christianization attempted to happen and that is in like the kind of dominant cultural side of russia like the that is a thing for the ethnic russians and so i did not know that that was something that had also that is also carried over in the non-core part of Russia. So we get this narrative that is very much on the periphery of Russia, which is, of course, fascinating in its own right, but you still have this dual belief, which is, that's the, like, term. I don't know who coined it, but it's, like, very prominent in scholarship and has been forever. Um, And so, like, you get this kind of continual dual belief even in the non-core areas of Russia. And I have, like, passage after passage after passage underlined whereas Laika is talking to forest spirits and all sorts of spirits and she has all these sorts of superstitions which are not part of any religion they're just kind of vestigial pagan beliefs essentially and that was like I don't know I found that absolutely fascinating at the same time that she could be praying to God she could also be praying to a forest spirit like it was just fascinating yeah and she's kind of describing to you what is the characteristic of this forest spirit is it friendly is it not and she's kind of acting different ways to make sure she doesn't offend Mm -hmm. this forest spirit so it can watch over her daughter's graves and it's really interesting to see that in action of just uh not only the the mere existence of the belief but what the way that people act given the existence of that belief especially when you need to rely on that belief for something in this case protecting her daughter's graves i had to, I had to do my dual belief thing i just had to get it out there no i, I thank you I, i've been wanting to talk about that because that, that is also what drew me in when you recommended this book to me um just we, we you and i i mean maybe i can't speak for your reading habits but it really focuses so much on european russia it's not it's not like by choice it's more by design it's just like these are the big authors you have to read yeah and so that's who you read and you're like oh yeah all of russia is just like oh there's this like vestigial pagan thing for the christians that's weird and then you get to like outside of kazan and you're like oh wait that also is a thing for non-christians as well that's really interesting uh, and this was like the first thing I had read that was, yeah, like as I'm thinking about it, by like not a Christian author from like Russia, I think. I mean, obviously they're like atheists, of course, but like mm-hmm. I'm not trying to imply that like atheists work within the Christian mindset, but like the ones in Russia k- kind of do, like kind of, sort of. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just I I just love reading this for that reason. And when you go to if you ever talk to a Russian person who's like from Russia, they might like get really proud of like. Russia is one of the most diverse places on earth. And that's technically true. There are 186 different ethnic groups in Russia. But yeah, (laughs) I know. More than you thought. That being said, 
it is not like all those groups just live all together. They're actually quite separate. It's really more reflective of how large Russia is rather than how, you know, diverse like each individual town or city is. European Russia is pretty dominant by ethnic Russians, ethnic Latvians, you know, Ukrainians, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have large populations of Muslims who are kind of more so in, um, well, southern Russia and then large populations of Buddhists in, in more so eastern Russia. It is really diverse, but it's not like they're intermingling. But that does mean that there are many, many stories of many people who are acting from a non-ethnic Russian perspective or ethnic you know, like European ethnicity and that there's a lot of stories there, which we have, uh, I have not read. And I think it would be really fascinating to dive more into. And I, that's why part of the reason why I loved reading Zuleika so much. I think that's kind of what makes it a really important book to read. There's a lot of modern literature that I read where I'm like, eh, this is a fun story, but I'm never going to recommend this to anybody. But this is one that I could recommend to like mm-hmm. literally anybody Like, it's both a really, really interesting story in the sense that it keeps you flipping the pages. And it's also interesting in the fact that it is really culturally telling to not just like modern Russia, but it also it it does some interesting things where it flips the traditional Russian literary canon on its head. And in the sense that I, I think a lot of the there are a lot of 19th century Russian authors who they will go to the Caucasus or like non core regions basically not moscow or st petersburg and they'll be like oh isn't this weird they say words funny or like you know like they don't they don't speak russian that's not their <laughs> primary language which is the case in zlaika where she has trouble understanding the russians and so it's a complete flip on its head where you get someone who hears russian and she's like i'm sorry i don't speak russian that well i don't know what you're saying to me and they're like you liar and you know, yeah, it's all fun and games when they get to go to another region and, you know, gamble and play around. But, um, you know, when they're moving somebody halfway across their empire, all of a sudden it's a <laughs> it's a huge issue that they don't speak their language. There's like a lot to talk about here. I don't even I, know what to address. I kind of honestly. agree as I was we were kind of summarizing that normally you can take a clear sort of yeah. approach to just a summary of what happens. And, and I think that's kind of the fun part. Well, right. I, I don't know if fun's the right word for this book. One of the parts that makes this book distinctive is the fact that you can't take just a clear summary all the way through it because it kind of flashes back. Like, it it makes this character who's already sympathetic even more sympathetic as it goes through it by talking about her history, where she's come from, and then just placing her in this completely foreign situation. And there's a lot of features of her character which I find so fascinating, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately I can't talk about until next week. Um, Because it really made me reflect some of the ways that I, me and the people I relate to, uh, well, I don't want to spoil it, but we'll get into it more next week. But I don't know if you picked up on this, and maybe this is just me projecting way too into it, but it almost felt weirdly like um, a a sort of adaption almost of the traditional Russian novel where you really had like, it's really kind of about family lines and you're like following Mm. five different families and you've got all these intricate details. And that's kind of true here where you have a bunch of different characters in their own lives and you get to follow them, but it's not about the families and the social status. It's about them being thrown out of all of that. And, you know, you've got Zuleika and Wolf and uh, Ignatov and later the other members of the the Leningrad or the Petersburg uh, intellectuals who 
enter the story who are now thrown out of that, but they all have their own narrative and relationship, whereas Zuleika is, you know, a peasant from outside of Kazan who is just trying to live and not go into the Irmand too deeply and, and have a kid. Wolf is, Wolf still thinks it's like 1915, so he's just having a good time. And Ignatov is like trying to ride high and cheat on his girlfriend with Nastasia uh, and inadvertently avoids getting liquidated like Bakiev, who is really just trying to look out for him. And there's so many interesting plot lines that will be combined and really in part two begin to clash, sort of, or at least they will begin to interact with each other really more so in forced development in each one. And it move, really moves from a, a descriptive phase of what is life like for these people into you're in a forest together when he has a gun. All right, let's <laughs> let Lord of the Flies happen. Here we go. He's made it back to Lord of the Flies. <laughs> he swore he wouldn't. <laughs> I've never left Lord of the Flies. <laughs> yeah. As is often the case, there's a lot more we could unwrap. Unfortunately, we only have about an hour. Uh, so we're going to wrap up here for now. This is Future Cameron coming back in to tell you, hey, that was the end of part one of Zuleika. So if you want to take a quick break, please do so. Go use the restroom. I mean, you could do that before. This is a podcast, not a movie theater. So I don't know. Get a drink of water. But if you're sticking around, part two of Zuleika coming up. Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, kind of want to open my own game store. And I have... Uh, been learning a lot about it along with Matt. <laughs> so keep your eye out for the Tipsy Tolstoy Game Store coming <laughs> soon to a college town near you. Yes, sir. I am Cameron Lalana, of course. Uh, this week, the Ukrainian culture appreciator. How so? Uh, I, I made Varaniki last night, Ooh. which did take a lot longer than I thought it was going to. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Varaniki with uh, sauerkraut and onions, or excuse me, mushrooms, really hits, really hits. I've frozen a bunch in different baggies and I've been uh, I've been cooking them each morning before I go to work, which has been just... That's the way to go. Yeah. It's been peak. I You're love it. You're really living out your best Sankia role play. <laughs> Today I was literally like... <laughs> I was literally eating the Varaniki with like dipping them into sauerkraut, <laughs> my, sour cream in my car. Um, and I was like, this is... Yeah, this is... I didn't think this is Sankia, but it could be. Could be. I think that's kind of like one of Sankia's friends. He did it at his, uh, his uh, what, grandma's house, right? Something like that. I don't... I think she made um, Draniki, not Varaniki, mm-hmm. but close enough. Alas. One of the Nikis. Uh, All right. (laughs) Well, as you've heard so far, this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be reading the second half of Guzelia Kina Zuleika. This book, again, won the Yasna Poliana Literary Award and the Big Book Award in 2015. Before we get into our episode, we wanted to plug an upcoming sort of series that we got going on. We're doing our Summer of Anna Karenina where we're going to be reading one part every other week on the podcast. Uh, We're going to be doing some kind of cool stuff in between. So pick up your copy of Anna Karenina, get cracking, look at our website for the schedule, join our Discord, become part of the Tipsy Tolstoy community, at least for the summer, maybe longer if you want. And if you are really enjoying the podcast, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We put a lot of work into our tiers and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you are not able to support us financially at the moment, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for the updates and super excited for the Anna Karenina summer. Uh, both yep. of us have already gotten cracking on that reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, for the third time now, probably. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a good one. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah, me for the first time and uh, our episode with Allie really whet my appetite for getting into the novel itself. Cameron is soaking. 
<laughs> excited to I'm excited to learn way more about Levin. <laughs> you are gonna learn way more about him than you ever wanted to learn. <laughs> okay. Well, before we get into the actual reading today, uh, Matt, what are you drinking? I am drinking the Lazy Man's Jack and Coke. Not the, oh well, not that the drink is made as a lazy man. It just signifies that I was a lazy man and didn't pick up beer this week. Got it. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were gonna you're gonna tell me you made it with like bottom tier <laughs> vodka and Shasta Cola or something. <laughs> Shasta Cola? No. <laughs> no. 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 Okay. Well, that's good. What are you What are you drinking this week? This week I am drinking uh, from Federation Brewing, an oh. Oakland institution, a low boy oatmeal stout. Uh, which I I love low I I love low boys I love oatmeal stout <laughs> I think that's a that's a I think that's a faction in a Stephen King novel If um, you are a low boy looking for a podcast to support <laughs> <laughs> I love oatmeal stouts and the United States does not love oatmeal stouts so I'm glad that someone is appreciating them so mm-hmm. as it should be Thank you Federation Brewing Yeah mm-hmm. as it should be uh, <laughs> Okay well let's. Uh, let's talk about Zuleika. Before we get into Zuleika, the story, uh, I want to continue my my ranting at you about Soviet history. Please, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week, we're going to talk about dekulakization. Last week, we mostly covered uh, some of the dynamics of the Great Terror, and I know I spent a long time talking about it, but I want to reiterate uh, the numbers are perhaps not as important as the existence of the mechanisms. The fact that the Soviet Union had the mechanisms it said it did, or perhaps enough to say, "Wow, that was bad," instead of needing to create, you know, many, many numbers of dead. Now, that being said, this book mostly does not focus on the Great Terror. Of course, it focuses primarily on the process of decolonization, which happened much earlier than the Great Terror. The book starts in somewhere between 1929 to 1930, uh, which is about the area that we see this policy of decolonization. Now, first question you may have is, what is a kulak and why are they trying to get rid of them? That's a really hard question to answer because the Soviet policy and at the federal, well, not federal, at the state level and at the individual, like, uh, rayon or region level often differed, and that sometimes differed from the popular definition of a, of a kulak. But essentially, the Soviet government understood the kulak to be classes of people who um, are among the peasantry who were a little bit more wealthy. Oftentimes, they had staff who were producing things for them, and, and those staff uh, had skills which they were using to produce items, which then the you know the kulak in this definition sold for profit. There are various levels of kulaks from all the way from like counter-revolutionary ones to kind of benign ones, but this is a very technical term. And by the time that you get to the 1929, late 1929, 1930, at which point the, the government of the Soviet Union is officially uh, passing plans to, okay, it's time to de-kulak guys. It's time to get rid of this uh, class of people. Many regions are already pursuing these kinds of policies. So it's not a major change, but this is suddenly when you get the like federal, not, I keep saying federal, the state highest level involvement in it. it it's a very complex process and it really can't be looked at simply as this happened from bottom up or top down now despite the the official endorsement of this from the very top it was complicated by the fact that popular understanding of what a kulak was sometimes differentiated it could be in the popular understanding uh, much simpler than the soviet understandings as someone who merely has money or uh, someone who goes against policy that was kind of more a, a definition used by regional powers usually and as this policy continued, you started running into things where many regional powers began to use this policy of decolonization 
seizing property from Kulaks, moving Kulaks to collective farms to achieve other goals, such as the need to requisition grain or creating more collectivized farms. So sometimes they'd, you know, kick someone off their land and give that land to a, a collectivized farm, a kokos, as happens in Zulaika. Um, now, this was kind of getting out of hand to the extent that the Soviet government actually kind of steps in and begins to regulate's not exactly the right word, but they get, began to put in place a more formal policy because since it was happening at the regional level, it was really inconsistent and happening much more violently in some places, much less so in other places. Sometimes it was applied unevenly. Uh, the document, which I will link to in the description of this podcast, <laughs> called it somewhat anarchistic at times. So <laughs> interesting policy, but that's basically the what was happening in this era, why you even see the well, the story that we're reading even happened. Now, the real thing I want to talk about today is the existence of the so-called fifth column and how that relates to national minorities in the Soviet Union. Now, very early in the Soviet Union, there was an attempt to create socialism for all parties involved. And this was basically called the policy of Koronizatsiya, which uh, modified socialist characteristics in the USSR's understanding to specific cultural and ethnic backgrounds. Now, by the time you get to Stalin and then the Stalinist government in the 30s, that's not so much a concern anymore. And now what's a much bigger concern is the so-called fifth columnists. And the fifth columnists are um, so-called wreckers or spies, saboteurs, people who are trying to undermine uh, Soviet governance in general. That concept of the, the fifth column, or in the Russian term, um, the Vragi Naroda, the enemy of the people, which itself, the definition of the Vragi Naroda changed over the course of the 20s and 30s, but the basic idea of them as a constant threat, creating kind of a siege mentality in the Soviet government, was pretty consistent. And you, you see this obsession with that in the way that the Soviet government pursued the, the fifth column, which was an outsized feature of the, of the political arrest they made. And oftentimes that was tied to the assertion that the fifth column was, was because their international power is trying to take them down. Now, you should understand that Stalin was looking at the world around him and saying he's surrounded by a world of capitalists. So the siege mentality is, is basically coming in that we're surrounded on all sides by enemies who want to take us out. So oftentimes this, this enemy of the people, especially in the 30s, began to be tied to foreign powers, which is why um, over 70 percent of all espionage arrests between uh, 1935 and 1940 uh, were the, the accused were accused of um spying for one of only three countries, for Poland, Japan, or Germany. Now, oftentimes when you have this discussion, it's kind of portrayed as, wow, wasn't he paranoid? But the thing was that, yes, the extent to which the Soviet government pursued this was was absolutely paranoid. The, the arrests of tens of thousands of, of Japanese people, of Polish people, of Latvians, Estonians, etc., etc., was absolutely paranoid. Which is not to say that those countries weren't actually trying to do the things that the Soviet Union accused them of. <laughs> actually, in the pre-war era, Germany and Japan both had very extensive military intelligence networks, which were penetrating the Soviet Union, putting agents in the Soviet Union. Oftentimes, they worked with uh, emigres from the Soviet Union or, or white or, or anti-Bolsheviks. Oftentimes, they worked with just refugees. Uh, the Japan, in particular, actually had pretty extensive a collaboration with a lot of Baltic countries, as well as, um, to some extent, Sweden. In fact, uh, it was uh, Japan had a pretty heavily involvement with the, especially uh, financial involvement with the Finnish military intelligence, who, of course, uh, if you're familiar at all with the, the Russian defeat in the Russo-Finnish War, one of the major features of why the, fin the Finns so handily defeated the USSR was because they had a very good cryptography program, which broke the Russian codes very early on. Of course, that was done by the Finns, but they had received no small amount of money from the Japanese, um, which is an interesting little fact of history. And even 
later allies of the Soviet Union, France and Britain in the pre-war era saw the USSR, even during the war, as a threat, but even more so before the war. So they were actually making plans to especially target vital regions in Russia or and were working with many um, minority groups within or around the USSR in order to begin to target these things. Now, there are only so many groups who <laughs> various nations were trying to work with. So one of the problems that that landed them in was that oftentimes some groups were, were working with or at least contacted by multiple nations. I'm going to quote from the article I was reading here. With so many competing nations recruiting from the same base, intrigues and plots abounded. And so too did the ease with which Soviet intelligence penetrated these various foreign plots. There's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that the USSR was actually quite heavily infiltrated into many of these groups of, of the Japanese, the Germans, the British. So they were actually well aware of the realities of this. Now, the infiltrators and saboteurs they were training and sending in was more so a matter of hundreds of people rather than tens of thousands, as I as I said before. But certainly the, the fact of uh, countries around the USSR trying to undermine it was actually very true. In fact, it was sometimes even more true than the highest level you might expect the highest leadership to exist. In fact, the military intelligence suggested to the high leadership of the Communist Party that uh, Hitler intended to betray them and invade them in Operation Barbarossa quite early on and quite often. Um, and Stalin, and who was at that point quite determined to follow a diplomatic path, uh, was, was actually quite reje rejected many of these reports. In fact, in one instance, Stalin wrote on a report from an agent who said that uh, Germany was planning to invade Russia. <laughs> he wrote, you can tell your source in the headquarters of the German Air Force to go fuck his mother. He's a disinformation <laughs> agent. <laughs> I'm going to put that one up on the board for uh, tweets that age poorly, Alex. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that led into the creation of the main directorate for the struggle against banditry, or as it's the unfortunate acronym in English goes, GUB, G-U-B-B. Which, <laughs> which is formed for the struggle against banditry, which performs an essential part of the NKVD training. And as I as I stressed earlier about this idea of foreign powers trying to undermine Soviet power, this this idea of banditry, which eventually comes to be understood as the main internal security threat of the Soviet Union, and the definition of banditry often basically transforms what was earlier understood as uh, as like diaspora elements of of many Chechen and Gushchevians. Um, Tartar people. There's a lot of ethnic groups in the Soviet Empire. It, it turns minor diaspora elements into bandit nations. And I'll, I'll post the definitions. It's quite a long list. But basically, it takes minority movements who were often uh, somewhat were not well represented in the Soviet governance because they were not so politically inclined. They were not conscious, to use the Soviet terms. Uh, they were transformed into basically uh, elements against the state, which was then reflecting how the Soviet government treated them, which in turn led them to become more actively anti-state, thus completing the prophecy. It has been fulfilled. <laughs> yeah. So that is why, if you're wondering, so like, why why are there are there troops out here in the middle of nowhere, uh, like taking land from <laughs> these, like <laughs> killing random people and taking land from them? That That's basically why. Um, at, at, on one level, it's because there was somewhat uneven application of policy. There was oftentimes the application of policy wrong in order to fulfill other requirements oftentimes it might be that the training and i don't think that's the case in this book but some people are looking at ethnic minorities as security threats because they're uh not engaging with the soviet empire they're they're rather engaging with their own communities at a non-political level etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's some of the thinking that's going on in this era i i'm gonna do a sort of broad stroke summary on the second half because it's quite long and i think 
Okay, so ever since you said that this was intended to be a screenplay originally, I cannot get that out of my head because I can just picture that you could take, like, you could handpick a couple scenes from each part of this book and you would have a phenomenal film. And then you could go back and you could handpick a couple different ones and you could still have an equally phenomenal film. Like, there's like a lot of really good individual events that happen, a lot of good descriptors. So I will. I will do my best. Yes. Uh, where where did we leave off? Well, we left off in perhaps the worst situation known to man. <laughs> well, I guess not totally because they're they're alive at this point. But known to Ignatov specifically, the rest of them <laughs> have already gone through it, kind of. <laughs> yeah. So Zuleika has been plucked up from her home in the name of decolonization. Her husband Mortaza has been shot by Ignatov, uh, and in a, a twist of fate, he has kind of acted as her protector in a way. Uh, on, on the long journey to Siberia, which is where he's taking them all to establish some sort of Kulak colony, if you will. If I can break in for a moment, it's yeah. perhaps worth noting. I don't. This is a minor feature of the last for the first half of the story, but um, there is a point at which there's a prison break on the train when they're traveling for months on end, uh, to which Zuleika is a witness, but she chooses not to leave. Uh, later on, Ignatov goes out on a branch for her and defends her and says she doesn't know anything, even though. The, the secret police, I think it's supposed to be the NKV, but it's not really said explicitly, yeah, yeah. want to take her. Basically, they're saying, kind of nudging me, like, we'll, we'll get her, we'll torture her and get her to admit and we'll take her away. And Ignatov goes out on a branch and, and protects her to their dismay. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of, like you said, taken on the role of protector, not only in actually getting the prisoners food, although that's not so much a humanitarian thing as a I have a duty kind of thing, but he does show some humanity and as he begins to spend more time with the prisoners yeah he shows uh, ju just an ounce more humanity than is <laughs> required to get them there alive i think um well particularly towards Zuleika, and and we'll get into that more in the second half i suppose but yes so you know they're almost they're almost there they're on a ship it sinks that sucks uh they all almost drown fortunately some of them are able to to get out of there alive that Zuleika uh, does and Dignitov does, and then there are some more characters that come into play. Uh, they're just kind of in the middle of this <laughs> this forest, just not a great situation. So everyone is, the, the 30 that have survived this absolute catastrophe of a trip are washed up onto the shore of where they're now going to settle. Zuleika is pregnant, super confused, having never left her hometown, her like one house is now just thrust out into this world, forced to try to survive, and that's kind of where we pick up in part three. So part three is really the survival story, I would say. <laughs> like, survival simulation, the resource management simulation, uh, if you will, uh, in which everyone that is washed up on shore people who don't really have skills of hey i'm i need to survive for an extended period of time until help can come are put together and forced to do exactly that although they don't know that it's going to take that uh ignatov kind of thinks that kuznets is going to come and rescue them fairly soon and so that leads to a probably the worst situation in the world uh, in which they do not <laughs> adequately start preparing for winter in time as as we as we see winter is always very difficult in siberia and there's really almost no time to prepare even as this kind of goes on in the future where people really survive very well in the winter they, they cite that frequently a quarter to a third of their whole population uh can can get killed off each winter uh so that's kind of that's kind of the the first part the establishing shots 
Uh, Ignatov going through all the prisoners, commenting on the different ways that they've ended up here. The part directly after that is where Zuleika uh, actually gives birth. Dr. Liba is the one who helps deliver the baby, and that kind of uh, cements their bond to each other. He will come to play a very important role in helping the child as he grows up and has has like seizures and medical issues growing up, so he's always mm. kind of there to help him. And uh, the people in the settlement are actually pretty nice to Zuleika. She's on cooking cooking duty. The way that they attempt to survive this winter is just building an underground house for all of them to basically huddle up in. And it doesn't it doesn't go super great, as you can imagine. They all kind of survive, but Zuleika comments that she notices that she's she's unable to breastfeed many times just because of how malnourished everyone is. She notices her baby's growing weak, uh, but he he ultimately survives. They make it to the, their first winter, and it's 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 not great. Just barely. Just barely. I mean, they really just barely eked it out, but they did. It gets down to the point where Zuleika, who is just completely out of milk, starts feeding her son her own blood. Yes. Which I told a friend of mine who actually knows things about biology and said she said that would actually seriously screw up the kid's developmental stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, oh, such is life. <laughs> don't feed your kid blood, I guess, is the message I got from that conversation, which changes some of my plans, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Vampire child. Uh, I'm not, I can't. I'm not liberty to say. <laughs> OK, so uh, spring arrives and Kuznets makes it back, kind of saying that they just they got really busy with all the kulaks that they had to move. And honestly, he didn't really think they were going to make it. So he was kind of like, why am I going to drive my boat all the way down here? But hey, nice to see you. Uh, and he has to kind <laughs> of mend the relationship that he had with Ignatov, who was still really furious with him for a number of reasons. But one of the things that Ignatov has to come to terms with in his story arc is the fact that he cannot go back to Kazan afterwards. He comes to terms with the fact that his old boss sent him on this mission as a way to escape basically being executed. And Kuzna says, oh yeah, that's that's right. There's a lot of stuff going on in the papers about your old boss and your old department. And Ignatov's like, you know, I don't believe that. That's That's ridiculous. And he's like, you know what? I will bring you a newspaper that says it. And he eventually does and ignatov has to kind of reconcile with the fact that he just he has no place in soviet society he has this village that he oversees and he is just a grumpy grumpy man so as the the settlement kind of gets some help from kuznets they're able to establish uh, actual houses things that are not just an underground kind of makeshift shelter and they're able to establish more buildings they have an actual medical sort of facility to a degree as best they can and that's where Leva ends up working and is very successful and there's kind of this whole chapter that gets into his history and psychology and the metaphorical egg that he has uh, around him that's shielding him from reality. I personally don't think that Leva's chapters are as strong as Zuleika's um, but that's that's just me. Uh, he is an incredibly helpful character like i said to zuleika trying to help her at just about any point that he can and zuleika herself is maturing and learning how to adapt to this situation she is realizing that the vampire hag may have been wrong she has a child that did not die she actually starts to think that god can't see her because siberia is like so far away so she is less into things like like forest spirits and she doesn't pray as frequently and she has lapses in in thought in like moral code i guess 
and she she starts to become actually interested in actually starts to catch the attention of Ignatov and she kind of has has some feelings about it that are not completely negative just definitely conflicted and there's this point pretty, where pretty unique for the man who killed your husband i would say. although i mean she didn't have that much love for her husband just kind of practicality about it so maybe mm-hmm. a bit different i suppose it's still <laughs> i it's I, still I can box. understand the confliction <laughs> for sure yeah <laughs> he killed my husband but he is hot but i mean he's pretty cute i mean <laughs> i mean yeah so she's she's out in the forest i think she's picking berries one day and ignatov starts to come on to her in a, a stroke of luck if you'd call it that uh, a bear sneaks up on them and fortunately for Zuleika she had uh, picked up Ignatov's rifle and aimed it at him uh, in an attempt to <laughs> get him to back up good for her uh, but now her baby is off to the side about to be mauled by this bear I, I'm just trying to picture the scene it's absolutely crazy and she just absolutely snipers this bear and Ignatov's like, you're a great hunter. Well, not exactly, but that's the moral of the story. He's actually, he actually says exactly, you're a uh, pro gamer. You're a pro gamer. Uh, and- <laughs> it's like, she basically, I mean, she was like number one's high score in that, like, in those CD bars that would have like the, I don't remember what it was, like those big game hunter games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cabello's big game hunter. <laughs> yep. She was number one. <laughs> <laughs> so Zuleika gets to gets to become a, a hunter actually and she gets to go out and just kind of hunt which is a really privileged position to have because you get to go just kind of unaccounted for in in the forest for long periods of time which is pretty sweet for a basically prison camp i would say getting a gun and being allowed to go wherever you want is, yeah, is a yeah. really good deal for being in a prison camp no it's definitely not bad but th- this relationship between her and, and ignatov starts to bloom if you will and there's, you know, several more encounters and whatnot. And eventually she, she does go to him and they do have a relatively prolonged relationship. And she's kind of like, you know what, you know, I'm, you know, I'm doing it good for me. And she she confronts her, her vision of the vampire hag telling her, look it, you know, I've done this and nothing has happened. And then immediately after that, something happens. And and she goes home and her son who, who at this point is probably about seven. He's he's aged a lot. And her son is missing. And she, she knows that her son sometimes... Um, her son sometimes goes out and looks for her. If she takes a long time getting back, she was going and she was actually sleeping with Ignatov. That's where she was. She wasn't out gathering berries or hunting or anything. Uh, so she takes out her, her skis, her snowshoes, and she's following her son's tracks to where he would go to meet her. And she's, she's noticing like the tracks are kind of getting lighter and it's, you know, it's kind of snowing and it's hard to see. And her son was about to be attacked by wolves because she comes up on this pack of wolves, and and she 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 goes in there and she takes the pistol that she took from Ignatov's place after having sex with him, and she takes out like a whole pack of wolves, like six seven wolves. She's like reloading. It's like an absolute action scene right there. This would have been a great one to be adapted. This would be right in the trailer. I want Zuleika to be in the next John Wick film. Zuleika, big game hunter. <laughs> it was good. Um, well, not so great for her son, who at this point has like hypothermia. Yeah, he he wasn't he wasn't mauled by the wolves, and he it takes him like several days to to wake up. He's being treated by Doctor Liba, and that's when Zuleika kind of breaks it off with Ignatov and says, "You know what? This is hey, look at this. I'm I'm being punished. This can't continue to." on so that is the end of that relationship ignatov kind of just goes downhill at that point he's just old so yusuf her son as he starts to grow up he becomes friends with the what has become the kind of local painter ikonikov 
and he basically has <laughs> he has the the moment that everyone has, which um, he says to Zuleika, "No, I don't want to study with Liba and become a doctor. I want to be an artist." And everyone says, "What?" And it it causes a little bit of a little bit of conflict, to say the least. Growing up in like the Bay Area, telling your parents that causes some consternation. Mm-hmm. Telling your parents that in a prison camp in Siberia, a yes. yes. little bit more. But a universal experience, perhaps. Yeah, I guess so. Say. Probably. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> uh, that's a really quick wrap up of Yusuf's story arc, but that's gonna have to suffice for now. And it, it sets up what is basically his primary conflict when we get into part four, which is much shorter. It's only two chapters. Uh, the first one is called The War, and it describes the effects of World War II on the Siberian settlements, which at first was basically non-existent. They just get news from Kuznets hearing about things, and they're not really sure whether to believe him or not. And honestly, they don't really care because they know they're not going to get drafted because they're all prisoners and people that are couldn't be trustworthy to uh, have guns to go hunting for animals. So why would you send them uh, to be fighting fascists who the government thinks they're going to side with. That's their logic anyways. And eventually, of course, the war gets really bad and many of them do have to go fight. The two that have to go fight are Ikonikov and Gorolov. And Gorolov, uh, to this point, we haven't really mentioned very much. He is basically just gunning for Ignatov's job. He's just the absolute worst. He's the camp bootlicker. Mm-hmm. He's literally described as that with that term like several times in the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he, he has to go and that's... that's Gorolov, no one really cares about him but Ikonikov that's that's pretty sad uh, particularly for Yusuf because after Ikonikov leaves he leaves his kind of artist workshop to him to fulfill which is a pretty tall order for a 12 year old but he, he does a good job and after a couple of years he kind of decides that he doesn't want to continue living in the settlement he wants to go to he wants to go to art school so Zuleika is understandably quite quite hurt by the thought of her son leaving her and also it's not a real possibility because he doesn't have any uh he doesn't have access to any of his documents which are under lock and key in Ignatov's office uh but Ignatov kind of recognizing that he is about to be ousted because he doesn't care about his job and Zuleika uh directly asking him hey can you um give my son uh, his documents so he can go to art school after he is actually fired by Kuznets who he's had a falling out with he burns just all of the camp documents and he rewrites Yusuf's birth certificate listing himself as the father. Therefore making Yusuf, uh, Zuleika's son, a quote-unquote legitimate person in mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And that he was not the son of a kulak. He's the son of a Soviet officer, which for what it's worth is better than yes. <laughs> the truth. Uh, and so there's just this really emotional scene where they, they all come together to help Yusuf go and, and, pursue, <laughs> and pursue this dream. Kind of a long shot, but he is he, he's going with the money that Ignatov gave him and a legitimate birth, well, an illegitimate legitimate birth certificate at this point. And uh, Gorolov, who has come back, has taken over the camp. Uh, the camp <laughs> really sucks now. Uh, I I don't know. It's it's a really sad ending. It's interesting. I do you mind if I read the last lines of the book? Because I thought it really kind of yeah. Please. <clears throat> so after Yusuf leaves, uh, we're kind of we go from being writing primarily in in past uh, in present tense, as most of the book is, to kind of a future tense of like what may happen, in, implying that we are we are in the moment of Yusuf leaving, and the rest is kind of him imagining forward. But I think it's kind of implied to be the actuality of of what really happens. Zuleika, seeing her son off, begins to slowly walk away, having uh, seen him vanish into the distance. And Zuleika will plod off, eating neither time nor the path, trying not to breathe so she won't increase the pain. 
At round clearing, she'll notice a person, grayed, limping, with a stick, walking toward her. She and Ignatov will catch sight of one another and stop. He on one edge of the clearing, and she on the other. He will realize suddenly how much she's aged. Eyes that have lost their sharp sight will not be able to discern the wrinkles on Zuleika's face or the gray in her hair. And she will sense that while the pain that fills her world hasn't gone, it has allowed her to breathe. The ending of this book was really difficult for me, I gotta say. Oh yeah, this was like, when I hit that last chapter, I was like, oh, I gotta sit down and just like, ooh, deep breath for a couple minutes. Yeah, I know, Matt was texting <laughs> me when this was happening, I think, so I was like, it's a long bit, Yusuf deciding to leave, and he's kind of hiding it from his mother, and she finds out after Ikonikov, who everyone has assumed his dad has sent a Yusuf, a kind of a secret letter, and, and inviting him to come to Leningrad. Um, and he, he decides to go and his mother finds and she, her whole life up to this point has been for him really. So she freaks out and it's just like such a long moment of her coming to terms with the fact that her son is a person and, and will go do his own things and that's not going to include her and she lets him go. And it's such like a painful raw moment that I had to, it sounds like you too, I had to just like sit back and just stare <laughs> at the ceiling for a while. It's a book that'll make you call your mother basically. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's <laughs> what I did after I read this. I don't think I mentioned it to my mom because I didn't want to say, hey, mom, I read a Russian book about a, a kid in, in the Stalinist gulag camps, and that made me think of you. Uh, <laughs> Touching. Thank you, Cameron. <laughs> Zuleika is not one of, the, I guess, the deeper books we've read, but it's one that stayed with me a lot more than some of the deeper ones, to be honest, just because the human themes of it are just really interesting to play around with it comes and goes for me what, what was your reaction once you because you you were you finished it yeah recently. i just i finished it not too long ago my reaction is that the middle was just a little too long i, I find i found that on a structural level i didn't really care about a lot of the side characters who were introduced and, and i felt that the writing was a lot weaker when they stepped outside of Zuleika's personality that was my personal opinion of it. That being said, I think the Zuleika scenes absolutely make it worth reading. I think that it's it's an interesting genre to read contemporary fiction set in the Soviet Union. Uh, and I think that just overall, it was a great book that I liked reading, even if I do have some mild criticism of it. I don't know if you... I, I, I noticed that when we were talking earlier, you, you mentioned that you had liked some of the other side characters and you had some more interesting takeaways than me. For me, I was like, oh my God, just please <laughs> let them stop talking. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they don't have as obvious features. I mean, they really do feel like, I know we've kind of hammered home this point a lot, but side characters in a movie. Uh, because other than Ikonikov, you have, you have um, Isabella and Constantine, who were a married couple from St. Petersburg. And they're very kind of bourgeois. Isabella is French. Constantine is very well learned. And they're, they just sit around like to debate. And <laughs> really are not good at survival, but they, they do their they best. They are podcasters of this group. They are us of this group. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and... I think I think that they're important because they really begin to form Yusuf's worldview because Zuleika is a very practical person down to her bones. Everything she's done, she's done for a purpose, either because it was what was expected of her in her life uh, before she was arrested or because she needed to survive after she was brought onto this journey. Um, but the kind of, I guess you could call it like a bourgeois sensibility of pursuing things because that it's what you want, not because there's any greater need to your community or to your class. That's kind of, to me, instilled in Yusuf by Isabella and Constantine and, and largely by Ikonikov. You can see in that the way that, that they really kind of adopt him. He becomes kind of like the, the child of not just Zuleika, who he's very attached to, but also the child of Isabella and Constantine, 
and Ikonikov. Ikonikov teaches him art. Isabella teaches him uh, French. Constantine just lectures at him. <laughs> the only person he's not attached to is, interestingly enough, uh, Wolf. Uh, Wolf, who, uh, up to this point, sends most of the book basically in just complete delusion. And the only thing that brings him out of delusion is Yusuf, basically. He, he comes out briefly to tell Zuleika she's pregnant and later to deliver the baby. Those are the only moments that he's lucid up to that point. And later on, he kind of fully emerges from his egg and realizes what's going on and is finally able to recognize reality and always wants to, to like, he has this attachment to Yusuf. And nothing hurts him more than the fact that Yusuf is, is almost completely uninterested in him. And I think that's such an interesting thing that Yusuf is, is the catalyst for his return to reality. And also the fact, the reason that he, honestly, Yusuf causes him the most emotional pain in the, in the book. And eventually after... After a while, he chooses to leave the settlement to go help. He realizes that other people need his help, and it's, there's nothing left for him here even after he spent so many years with them. Uh... Matt and I have debated. At a certain point in the book, Zuleika claims to marry um, Wolf because she and Wolf live together, and she thinks that she's being published for living with a man while unmarried. It's not real clear whether or not she actually marries him, but this has been his whole life up to that point, and I think it's an interesting character arc that Yusuf is attached to everyone who's kind of bourgeois and is not attached to Zuleika, his mother. Well, not attached to her enough to stay with her and not attached to Wolf, who only does the practical work of a doctor. So I wanted, I wanted to talk about an interesting connection that kind of happens later on in the book between storytelling and reality, where you have the village of, of the present camp they're living in, which is named Simruk, which represents the seven hands, which built it initially before everyone else comes to it and makes it a bigger camp. And you also have the story of the of the Simrug. And in English, that they're... They're different. They've got the Simruk, seven hands, and Simrug, the bird. But in Russian, they're pronounced basically the same, Simruk and Simruk, because in Russian, if you end a word on G, it becomes a K, because Russian's an anarchic language with, with no rules. Uh, but well, there are rules, but you don't get to understand them. You don't specifically <laughs> don't get to understand them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why I am where I am with my language learning. Us peasants couldn't understand the Simruk the story is of of a bird basically like the perfect bird who every other bird has a question for and this great mass of birds needs to go to the Simruk to to, or the Shah bird to understand something and they all travel through these great many quests and they travel through low valleys and high mountains and many of them get caught up in temptation on the way and finally you have basically just a handful of these birds left who've, who've survived this journey to this point. And they get to the end, and uh, let me let me <clears throat> just read from the story itself. The birds realized they had reached Simruk's dwelling place, and they felt his approach through the glowing great gladness in their hearts. Their eyes squinted from the bright light that filled the world, and when they opened them, they saw only one another. In that instant, they grasped the essence, that they were all Simruk, each individually and all of them together. Think about it. <laughs> just conceive. It's just like, think. Drop some LSD and think about it. I mean, for me, this was kind of the the point in the story where obviously it continues after this, especially with Yusuf's story with his mother. But really, we get to the point of of what Guzel Yahina is kind of telling us in that we have a group of people searching for a truth and realize eventually that that truth is not found in some power above them but in their community with each other in the friends we made along the way <laughs> <laughs> we did it the real truth of existence was the friends we made along the way Camus shaking in his <laughs> boots uh <laughs> yeah i liked i liked the the storytelling i'd liked there were a lot of really interesting 
things structurally like this that happened in the second half of the book. And one of the ones that I liked a lot was watching Yusuf grow up and getting a parallel plot line to kind of watching Zuleika both grow up and go through this incredibly traumatic experience throughout the book uh, where <laughs> like there there are several points where Zuleika is telling Yusuf about uh, her her old life in Yulbash and talking about the different animals that were there and because they have no animals because they're a quite poor Siberian settlement uh, Yusuf has never seen like cows and goats and the first time that he sees them are through Ikonikov's drawings which give him a really interesting perspective on life I would imagine when some of the more basic things that we take for granted every day are actually transformed into these kind of not mythical, but like, I don't know, they're just otherworldly because they're not something that you interact with at all. And so you get like something, something very interesting with someone who's like kind of schooled into the Soviet kind of sort of way in the settlements. Plus, as Cameron has mentioned, all of the people that are around him, helping him learn and grow, not just in school, but like languages and art and whatnot. Uh, and so he has just a, a very different experience by by so many different standards than Zuleika did. I, I have a question for you. I was wondering how you saw Ignatov's character arc, because obviously begins the book uh, shooting Zuleika's husband um, and ends the book kind of stare after after many intermittent love affairs, staring at uh, a much older. And of course, he is, himself is also much older, Zuleika, as they stand across a clearing from each other recognizing the agedness of the other so actually i think well i i will just say this on on the ending if you notice he 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 does at one point mention a couple times how much zuleika has aged but he at the very end finally notices how much he's aged and it says that his eyes because of their lost eyesight he's unable to see how much zuleika has aged and like the wrinkles on her face and whatnot and so in my mind that's like he's kind of seeing her like not younger but i don't know i i thought it was a, a little bit optimistic at the end, the actual realization of yourself. And there's this there's this one kind of actually quite major plot point that we didn't discuss during the summary, which is pretty critical to his arc, uh, which is when Kuznets during the probably height of the purges says, you know what, this, <laughs> this is the time that we need to make our move. We're going to say there's a hundred saboteurs in the camp. Uh, we're going to shoot them all. Uh, and then we are going to get promoted. And Ignatov is like, what are you like? He thinks he's joking. Uh, and I think a little part of him thought he was right. Wanted him to be joking. He says like, no, I'm not going to do that. And that's what causes the falling out between Ignatov and Kuznets. And that is the turning point for Ignatov. Because I think if you gave that that same officer the opportunity to do that at the beginning of the book, 100% he's going to do that. He becomes actually quite a dynamic character throughout his his time as the leader of, of the settlement. And I think as a, as a whole, he has a, a, a good-ish story arc. I mean, he ends up relinquishing his power because he doesn't want it anywhere. He doesn't want to be... He wants to support other people in his community, but he doesn't want to be the one in charge of them, I don't think. Yeah, I find Ignatov as a character fascinating. Ignatov is interesting because he's not a good person. No, no. He is a bad person who is, and that's why I think he's interesting, uh, because um, there, there's a line from a novel I really like, In the Lake of the Woods. It ends on this line. Can we believe that he was not a monster but a man, that he was innocent of everything except for his life? Um, which kind of rings true for me with Ignatov, and that he, as you've said, is not a good man. Mm -hmm. Through it all, despite not being a good person, he 
makes interesting decisions. Yes. Despite being self-absorbed and spending the first half of the book obsessed with, I need to break up with my girlfriend because I caught him sleeping with this much hotter <laughs> woman. And, oh, woe is me. I just have such a hard life sleeping with such a hot woman that I have to break up with my girlfriend. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then it gets sent down this, this rabbit hole of needing to escape from his own organization because they're out to, to get him for his associations. And he ends up in a spiral of just, he, he's just obsessed with, with waiting for Kuznets' next visit after he you know, arrives at this camp and he's just always drunk. And there's a moment when Isabella is kind of looking off at him and someone says something about him as a, an unfit leader. And she says, no, no, he's, he's a fit leader uh, and he's a good man. He's just troubled. And when I first read that, I kind of rolled my eyes. Um, and I still do. Um, but I think it, there is something interesting about a character who is just such a relentless piece of shit who simultaneously is he, he cannot lose his humanity and that he does he does step out on a limb for Zuleika and he continues to have human emotions and I'm not saying he's a good person I don't think he is but the fact that he just kind of has this like nascent uh, humanity just kind of getting him to protect these people time and again especially as you've mentioned from Kuznets and the end which costs him his job um, makes him such an interesting character to me. Yeah, you're not really ever rooting for him. You're rooting for him to do like certain things that are just not horrible at times. That's why I said like what I said his character arc is good-ish. Like it is a well-written arc that I enjoyed reading. I did, I don't want to imply that like I, I was rooting. Uh, like I liked a lot of the things he was doing because I didn't. Yeah, but that's why he's an yeah. interesting character because he's not he's not a good guy out to do the right thing. He's uh, he's a selfish person out to protect himself, and incidentally, he happens to do things that protects all the people under his care. Oh, one last thing I wanted to mention. Uh, if if you wanted the Shawbird chapter, the, the story of Simruk, um, if you wanted to, to hit it home anymore about how much Guzel Yakina wants you to focus on this, the, in, in Russian, the title of this book is uh, Zuleika Opens Her Eyes. Uh, and the first words of the chapter of the Shawbird, which is about the story of Simruk, um, are, is the sentence Zuleika Opens Her Eyes. So, um, I think she was trying to transmit some message to you there not certain what uh <laughs> yes there's there's obviously a lot to talk about with zuleika there's a lot i i enjoyed this book a lot a lot of interesting character arcs especially because not everyone is a good person it's just a good book like honestly you should read it and also not only is it a good book but lisa hayden did a phenomenal job translating this this i cannot imagine was easy to translate uh but i i I found it a good read in English as well. Shout outs for the do. <laughs> well, uh, and Lisa Hayden come on the podcast. <laughs> honestly. Um. Uh, well, before we wrap up, Cameron, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you right now? Okay. Well, I, I have to admit, after I after I finished up my beer, I, I went to the next drink mm -hmm. in the house, which uh, was not a great selection. So all I had was a, a good swig of um, 100 proof vodka. So I'm at a good... I'm at a good six absolutely. or seven. I got to be. I'm like, later in the book, Ignatov just absolutely blasted on berry vodka for like most <laughs> of the book. I feel like this must be what he felt like from day to day, I think. Uh, how about you, Matt? Oh, unfortunately, kind of low because I couldn't stop myself from talking long enough to, <laughs> to drink more. Because <laughs> uh, I had so much to say about this and not enough time. <laughs> You should have you should have done what I did, which is stop both of us from talking, just so we can make you listen to me drinking my vodka. I, but I respect that, you know, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, this was a lot of fun. But looking forward, what are we reading next week? Next week we are going to be getting into some Chekhov. 
we're going to be reading the lady with the dog so that's our, our first short story by him that we've we've read it, it's going to be a good one can you believe we're over 20 episodes into this podcast we've not once read Chekhov? i feel like that sometimes but there are so many demands on what to read people go like, oh, you should read this you yeah. should read more of this and i'm like okay yeah but like there are so many authors that we have to read and also no yeah how do you think i'm gonna fit an entire dostoevsky novel into one single hour long episode <laughs> i would have to like i would have to do like a 24 hour long episode <laughs> which we just might <laughs> keep a lookout for that keep a, one. <laughs> keep a lookout for our mental breakdown in that episode <laughs> comes at around hour 13 14 uh well, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons, Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Paige, Darren, Lou, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Whew. You can still do it in one breath. I know, just barely. <laughs> Podcasting isn't free <laughs> and grad school really does not pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running and reward us for <laughs> reward us for our efforts take a look at our patreon at patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy the music used in this episode was soviet march by toasted tomatoes you can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on youtube under the same username if you're looking for other places to find us you can also follow us on instagram at tipsy tolstoy podcast or join our email list on our website tipsy tolstoy.com you'll hear from us again soon